All right, we're in Ezekiel 37 tonight. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 28. Ezekiel 37. The latest thing in spicing up sermons is to play movie clips that illustrate the point you're trying to make from God's Word. One of the services available called Movie Ministry has suggested clips for various topics. So if I as a pastor have a particular topic, you know, uh, forgiveness or repentance, I can go to their website and get a suggested movie clip that will give me a powerful illustration. Uh, Let's say, for example, you want to illustrate spiritual warfare. They suggest a scene from The Matrix Reloaded. problem is, uh, maybe you have freedom to watch it, maybe you don't, because it's an R-rated film, and they attach this warning to it. I do appreciate this. They say, The Matrix Reloaded contains strong martial arts, gun, and vehicular violence, profanity, and a scene of sensuality and partial nudity. Okay, so maybe I don't want to use that clip on Sunday morning. It's tricky trying to illustrate the Bible, because you don't want to stumble anybody while you're trying to encourage them. Ezekiel was an extraordinary illustrator of Bible truth. He was like a walking PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I mean, he gave all these great visuals to the Word of God. His visions and his acted-out dramas brought God's prophecies to life for these exiles in Babylon. We're going to encounter two more of these in chapter 37. Now, Ezekiel had for many years been telling the exiles that they would not be returning to Jerusalem anytime soon. The city and the temple would be destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they would serve out the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. The exiles didn't believe that God would allow the city and the temple to fall. And so, even though Ezekiel had been prophesying many years that that's exactly what was going to happen, they wouldn't have anything of it. In fact, something the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles had begun. Israel would not really be a sovereign nation again until the far distant future in the last days. Yes, they would return to the land after the Babylonian captivity, but there they would be subject to the Persians and eventually the Romans. And then, as you know from history, in around 70 A.D., Jerusalem and the temple would again be overrun and destroyed And from that time until very recently, although there was a Jewish presence in the promised land, you know there was no nation of Israel, only Jews dispersed all over the earth in every nation of the world. Now Ezekiel was also telling them that the Jews of the dispersion would be miraculously regathered to their land, that they would be restored as a nation. Now in chapter 37... He illustrates their future regathering and restoration using two figures. The vision of the dry bones in verses 1 through 14 and the sign of the two sticks in verses 15 through 28. And quite honestly, these are very just straightforward visions. There's nothing uh, mystical or mysterious about them. In fact, the Lord tells you exactly what they mean. They're to give spice and, and to liven up and to illustrate the points that Ezekiel was making. 
Uh, we can be pretty confident in the interpretation, as I said, uh, because Israel does live again in these last days, do they not? Uh, and so when Ezekiel is giving us this illustration, we say well, it's a picture of Israel living again in the last days. We are the ones who see that. And so let's take a look at the bones first in verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Now, God transported Ezekiel to a specific valley, although we're not told which one it is. It was a bone field full of disconnected skeletons. In verse 2, then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, <clears throat> there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. All indications were that these bones had been there a long time. A long time had passed, or we would say from our future perspective that um, a long time uh, had passed. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And so I answered, God, you know. Ezekiel had learned over the years to not be too quick in interpreting God's signs on his own. He'd rather the Lord tell him exactly what he intended. It's an encouragement to let, uh, to us rather, to let God's word interpret itself as we compare scripture with scripture. It's also a reminder that scripture isn't really subject to what we might call private interpretation. In other words, there really are things that are true and must be believed by all Christians. Sure, there are non-essentials where we might disagree agreeably, but there are also foundational truths that are once for all delivered by the apostles and prophets that are unshakable. And so the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And if you'll remember way back when we were studying the book of the Revelation, which intimidates a lot of people, almost every time, I'd say more than 90% of the time when there was a vision or a sign or a symbol or an illustration, a few verses later there was the interpretation. Uh, there in chapter 1 you encounter the vision of the candlesticks, Jesus walking in the midst of the candlesticks, and then it says at the end of the chapter the seven churches or the seven candlesticks. And so you're not left to a private interpretation of what the Bible is talking about. And so you say, well, why even talk in signs then? Well, the same reason we talk in signs today, because they're more clear, not less clear. When you're driving down the road, you don't want some guy who's been hired out to shout at you, pedestrian crossing! And you say, well, what, what did that guy say? And the next thing you know, you've run somebody over. That's not very clear. You'd rather have that, you know, stick man walking across the street and you know exactly what's happening there. And so signs are given so that we'll understand it. And God always tells us what his signs mean. And so just keep reading and you'll figure it out. And so verse 4, again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you. You shall live, then you shall know I am the Lord. Now we can read this so nonchalantly as if it's normal to start prophesying to a bunch of skeletons. I mean, just think of the practical uh, scene there. I mean, you know, we want to get into the message and know what the prophecy is and compare it to modern Israel and all that. But just think of Ezekiel. He's transported to this valley. He's, he's in a real place, uh, and, and he's seeing this vision. And God says, I want you to talk. I want you to prophesy to these dead 
skeletons, these bleached out bones that have been laying here for a long time, just start prophesying to them. What if God asked me to just preach to a building? I mean, what if you showed up tonight and I was out front talking to the stained glass window? Oh, stained glass window, thus says the Lord. I, I think you'd, you know, you'd find one of the guys that maybe I know better, uh, you know, and you'd say, hey, you know, can, you know, one of you guys, you want to go ask Pastor Gene what he's doing? And somebody would come up and the other, you'd have backup, I'm sure. And, and you'd say, and I'd say, well, I'm prophesying to the, to the stained glass window. The Lord told me to talk to the window. And it's a little weird. I mean, and, and, you know, Ezekiel, I love Ezekiel because the guy was just fearless. He just did whatever the Lord told him to do. Uh, and, and he did some of the most whacked out stuff of any of the prophets in terms of illustrating sermons. Laying on his side, cooking food with excrement, digging a hole through his house. Now he's out in a field, uh, you know, in this vision, and he's prophesying to these bones that he sees. You know, or maybe I'd go out to an empty field and start preaching to no one. Now, we want to be careful here. Too many churches sponsor stunts to encourage attendance. Uh, you know, come on Father's Day, the pastor's going to be sitting on the roof, and every father gets a free screwdriver, you know. And so, you know, churches do stuff like that to bolster attendance and all. Not because the Lord tells them to, uh, it, it's a stunt, basically. And that's not what Ezekiel was doing. It's not what we want to do. But if we get a clear word from the Lord to do something, we're going to have to follow through with it, even if it is slightly unusual. I'm kind of happy that we don't get... Well, I have mixed emotions about this. On the one hand, I'm happy when we don't get these unusual decrees from the Lord. But on the other hand, I'm a little bit unhappy because I'd like to hear from the Lord in this area sometime. And, you know, over the years we've done some things that are a little bit different. Nothing is whacked out as Ezekiel has done. Uh, but I just think we need to be open to that uh, and, and just see what the Lord would have us do. At least, you know, Ezekiel was, and we have some great prophecy as a result of it. Now, in a moment, God will give us the interpretation of this vision. For now, we're going to marvel that he wants his people to understand him so much that he illustrates for us using visual aids. Uh, and so basically that's what he was doing. He was saying, you know, I, uh, Ezekiel's told you all this. Now I'm going to give you a visual so that it will really bring it home because, you know, a picture really is worth a thousand words in that sense. And so verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, before we get the interpretation, we can still see two things here. Or actually what we'd say is that they came to life in two stages. First, they were brought back to physical life as bone came to bone and sinews and flesh came upon them and then skin covered them. And then second, they were brought back to spiritual life when the breath, meaning the spirit, gave them life. And so Ezekiel is prophesying 
to these bones that have laid uh, you know, out there for a long time. Uh, they come together physically, uh, and then they come together spiritually, as it were. So what does it mean? Well, we already know if we've been listening to Ezekiel's prophecies. It means that Jews dispersed from all over the earth will in the last days be regathered to their promised land and be saved. From one vantage point, it looks as if the nation of Israel is dead. Not individual Jews, because you could look, you know, from 70 A.D. forward until May 14 of 1948, you could find Jews all over the world in little pockets uh, and, and in larger pockets of, of population. But if you were thinking in terms of the nation of Israel then it seemed to be dead. It seemed as if that, their bones were scattered and, and had been for a long time, for centuries, like bleached bones. Uh, and that's what Ezekiel's been talking about in these previous prophecies, that, yes, we're going into captivity, but in the far future, God is going to fulfill all of His promises to the nation of Israel and bring us back into the land, regather us and restore us. And so you can know what this means simply by the reading of the prophecies. But to be sure that we're getting it right and that his people were getting it right, God gave them this vision and he gave them the interpretation. He says in verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. And so that's a vision, that's a, a really good summary of the nation of Israel for centuries. The Jews themselves longing to be in their promised land, but it seemed that there was no way that they would ever be restored to uh, the land promised them. And they were just scattered all over the world, and wherever they were scattered, they were persecuted, and it seemed that the nation was dead, that their hope was lost, that they were cut off. And it is important we realize God is not speaking of the resurrection of certain individuals here. He's talking about resurrecting Israel as a nation again after her long dispersal in all the nations of the earth. The exiles in Babylon were about to hear the news that Jerusalem and the temple were gone. Ezekiel was giving them hope of a certain future. They would be a nation again one day. And so verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I'm pretty sure Israel is a nation again. Is that correct? Did you check the news today? They're still a nation, right? Living in their land. Jews from all over the world have regathered to the promised land and continue to do so in increasing numbers. And that means that we have seen and are seeing the literal fulfillment of Bible prophecy. We're seeing it happen right before our very eyes. The Bible is being fulfilled. God said He would do this, and He has done it and is doing it. And it's a marvelous thing. It's, so, it's almost become too common so that we don't understand that it's a miracle. You know, people say, well, I don't see any miracles anymore. You know, if I saw a miracle, then I, I might believe. And, well, the nation of Israel is a miracle. Every, every Jew that comes back to Israel is a miracle and is the fulfillment of prophecy. It says in verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. Now, based on what comes next, we would say we have yet to see this. This is part two of the vision. We've seen the physical resurrection of the land 
and uh, the people coming into the land, but not the spiritual resurrection to the Lord. The Jews are in the land, but they are not saved. Individual Jews can come to Christ and be saved, but the nation of Israel is by no means a Christian nation, is it? It's not a nation that has given its heart to the Lord. They haven't all believed on the Lord. And so this is the second part. So Ezekiel, very accurately giving God's prophecy, said this is going to happen in stages. First, the land and and the people are going to be restored and regathered. And then at a certain point in time, they're going to be given spiritual life and come to know me. If God has accomplished verses 12 and 13, it's more than reasonable to suppose he will accomplish verse 14. We, of course, know how he's going to do it. We talked about it a little bit last week. It involves the seven-year great tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist, and the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And so God brings the nation of Israel back together in their land, brings Jews from all over the earth, and then in and during the great tribulation, He brings them to a point where they will receive Christ, where the breath of God will come back in them, where they will be born again. And uh, in Zechariah and in other scriptures, we read of all Israel being saved at the coming of Jesus Christ in his second coming. Now, 2,500 years ago, Ezekiel prophesied to a valley full of dry bones. Today, they live just as he said they would, and they are awaiting the breath of the Lord to save them just as he said they would. Now, the sign of the two sticks is next. In verse 15, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for the house of Israel and his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And so this, again, another visual thing that Ezekiel went around doing. He had these two sticks that he wrote on, and then he would go about and, and, you know, join them together. Uh, And then, you know, kind of almost I see this almost like a mime where there was no, you know, speaking. There was just these two sticks. It's kind of like when we used to go on missions trips to Honduras or uh, places where there was a language barrier, we would just do these dramas that didn't have any speaking, you know, so that uh, in this universal thing. So you have these sticks and you bring them together and people say, well, what, what does that mean? You know, Judah and Israel, these two sticks now together. And then Ezekiel would tell them the meaning of it. Now, after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel split in two. It was about 931 B.C. The southern kingdom was known as Judah because Judah was its larger tribe and because the country was ruled by a king from that tribe. It was the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, in the south, but it was known as Judah. Um, The northern kingdom was called Israel or sometimes Ephraim, either because Ephraim was the strongest and most influential tribe or because the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, was an Ephraimite. And so you had Israel to the north. It's a little bit confusing because we we know it as Israel. But when they split, they said, no, we're Israel now, ten tribes in the north, and you're Judah, two tribes in the south. 
Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria in about 722 B.C., and Judah was taken into exile in Babylon, that's where we're reading Ezekiel, in three stages, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then finally and fully in 587 B.C. The uniting of the sticks pictured God restoring and reuniting His people in the land as a single nation. And so again, we're looking forward to the end times when Israel will be in their land, united uh, all 12 tribes. Verse 21, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king shall be over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with idols, nor with detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now Israel was still divided at the time of this prophecy. The northern kingdom, in fact, didn't really exist. This is therefore clearly a future prophecy and it is future even to us. Now, I should tell you that there's a lot of crazy speculation out there about the supposed ten lost tribes of the northern kingdom. Have you ever heard of the ten lost tribes in your research? There's a lot of crazy stuff. For example, this is just one theory. It's called British Israelism or Anglo-Israelism. It's a theory that people of Western Europe are... Uh, especially in Britain and the United States, are descended from the lost tribes of Israel. People who believe this argue that the deported Israelites became Scythians who are ancestors of the Celts and Anglo-Saxons of Western Europe. Uh, The theory arose in England and then it spread to the United States. During the 20th century, British Israelism was promoted by Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God. He argued that his theory provided a key to understanding biblical prophecy, uh, etc., etc. Then uh, there's some of the explorers, especially during the 17th and 18th centuries. They claim to have collected evidence that some of the American Indian tribes were descended from the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, the truth is, the simple truth is, the ten tribes were never lost. Most of the people of the northern kingdom were deported to ancient Assyria. Many of those who remained in the land reunited with Judah in the south. Assyria was then conquered by Babylon, who then went on to conquer and deport the two remaining tribes in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. When Cyrus, the Persian, allowed the Israelites to return to Israel, many from the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes returned to Israel. In the New Testament, the prophetess Anna was from the tribe of Asher. She was one of the ten supposed lost tribes. So in the New Testament, we see they weren't lost. In Jesus' day, Israel was a mix of those from the former northern and southern kingdoms. In the end times, we read in the Revelation, God will call Jews from all twelve tribes. And so the ten tribes have never really been lost in that sense, in the sense that they've reemerged in the new world as Americans or American Indians. That's just crazy talk. Uh, it, it doesn't have any validity. So verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall all walk in my judgments and observe my statutes, and they will do them. Now there's debate among scholars as to whether David here means the former King David or the greater David, uh, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. 
I lean towards King David actually reigning over Israel as a nation while Jesus Christ is the ultimate monarch over Israel and all the nations of the earth. Uh, because there are just some promises that seem to be made to David himself on, and that he will again be king over Israel. Uh, it's not worth fighting about, but it, it just makes sense. Verse 25, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children, forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, I like these last verses because you notice the permanence of the promises. He says forevermore. He says they're everlasting. He says they're forever. And so here we're definitely looking forward to what we call the millennial kingdom, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth that follows the great tribulation. We're looking beyond that to eternity. In closing, we would say that Israel has been physically resurrected. We see that. We see that it's true. They're in their land again. They will be spiritually resurrected through the great tribulation. To say that we live in exciting times, well, that's an understatement, isn't it? As we see the fulfillment of prophecy. 